Headley Devil. Grab your pants. Good morning. It is Wednesday, the 1st of November, and in the studio with uh, Patty and Judith this morning. How are you two? Good, actually. How are you, Patty? I'm very, very well. I the sleep, these weather patterns have been getting me up and down, up and down. It's like been riding a strange, strange That's beast. Been a bit odd, hasn't it? it Hot has. and then cold and then. Hot and cold. But that's good for the circulation, so I'm sure everyone's <laughs> blood is pumping well and truly. Really? Is it? I, I didn't know that was a thing. Hot, hot, so hot what, and cold. Hot, um, large fluctuations in temperature? Yeah, it stimulates blood flow. So if you ever get a swollen wrist or ankle, they advise that you put hot and cold, hot and cold, and it sort of circulates good blood flow into there and is meant to bring down swelling, so I've been told. Well, thank okay. you, um, Patty, for that tip this morning. Um, and also uh, missing this morning is Kate, because last week, um, although we ran out of time at the end of the show and didn't have a, have a chance to mention it, um, because we had a jam-packed show last week, uh, is off to uh, Bega in New South Wales. She is uh, moving and um, she will be still aiming to produce uh, some segments for us because she has a, a wide variety of interests that she still wants to continue following and making sure that we hear um, here on, on Wednesday Breakfast. And she's going to be travelling around Australia. Oh, she is So too. she's going to be our roving reporter. This yes. is very exciting. Find out all sorts of things from Kate. So it's just the three of us this morning, but we do have plenty coming up uh, in the show this morning. Um, Judith, what have you got a bit later in the program for yeah, us? Yeah, later in the program we'll be talking to Colleen Hartman from the Greens about the decision to trial a um, supervised injecting centre. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> round of applause. A round of applause. Well done uh, to the Andrews government after being against it for so long, after really, um, you know, two coroner's reports came out and uh, said with... with no other conditions attached, really. They said, this is what you need to do. Yeah. This is what you need to do. If you want to save lives, this is what you need to do. And the government said no at the time. But uh, apparently... Well, you know what? I, I think it's great that a government can change its mind. Because it, some people get really stuck in, in uh, you know, a particular idea. So obviously, I mean, hopefully it's the evidence. They've looked at it and, and they've come around. In the sense, <laughs> I mean, uh, my cynical... Um, I, 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 as soon as I said that, as soon as I could see you're cynical, it just jumped right out of your head. There. I know. Well, you <laughs> know Penny, it's Penny could convenient see timing. Look, it's very good that it's happening, so we won't, you know, uh, uh, get, get falling for tripped up on the fact that there happens to be a by-election now. Some very strong groundwork that's helped put this together. So hats off to a lot of people who have created the groundswell that didn't happen out of nothing. No, absolutely. Uh, And a bit later in the show, we're also... We've got a few things on. We've got a lovely lady, Euphemi, coming in to talk about a different sort of dance party, a butt plug dance party, Um, (laughs) which sounds very interesting, but she's a pleasure centric worker and looks with working with individuals or groups about exploring their own body some people need a little bit of help to find different places and find the comfortabilities of their zones i um <laughs> i heard a story that i quickly want to share with you that um it's just an example of somebody perhaps not exploring their body in a way that you probably should um just for a matter of hygiene and it was this story of this um uh, this young lady had just married this young man two months into their marriage and uh, she had noticed that over this time her um, husband um, was a uh, bit bit lax on the old personal hygiene. She uh, he, he just seemed to have stinky feet and he'd come home smelling a lot and she just sort of put it down to, oh, maybe he's just not quite um, washing enough. But then 
there were some circumstances where he started to started to smell a little bit like a toilet, and she started to notice some um, some uh, stains on things that were pretty hefty, and eventually confronted him about it after a, a particularly um, messy scenario, and and he said, "Oh no, you don't. Um, he he doesn't uh, wipe between the cheeks because uh, that that would be a bit gay." <laughs> <laughs> This man had grown up his entire life not knowing how to wipe his bottom properly because he was concerned that wiping his own bottom was a little bit gay. Um, which no, I think he, he is... He wouldn't have been born with that idea. No. No, no I think he came important. from somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I, I mean, that's an example of that uh, yeah. ex- extreme version of yeah. toxic masculinity, isn't it? But, um... Big time. So tune in and... Learn a little bit of an insight of maybe how to place a um, a butt plug. (laughs) But uh, we also have coming in Culture of Kindness. And she's uh, the lady who's headed this up has done a lot of great work within healthcare systems to make them less sterile and invite creatives in to create um, different stimuli other than sort of your direct sort of um, patient-focused outcomes. Well, that's that's really interesting. I know about a number of projects of art in, within hospitals, particularly with young people, and uh, it's been great because it's also been quite political in that it turns the whole situation around when these young people say, "Look, we're in a children's hospital with children-sized beds, with you know children's toys. Let's have you know something for us, please." That was quite a while ago now, and that's been rectified. But the arts was amazing around yeah, that stuff. So yeah. I was- Having a look into the story and there's a festival running at the moment which incorporates lots of different arts and it's all about opening up this conversation and sort of Great. being very patient-centric, trying to listen but also mm. um, yeah, pushing the conversation forward. So we'll have a chat to her. I know that she's very busy. She's at the moment on another radio station as we talking, speak, talking, as talking, we talking, speak. talking. So <laughs> I think we'll have her well and truly warmed up by the time she lands here. Excellent. Um, and it is five minutes past seven this morning on this first day of November, um, where I believe <laughs> for the rest of the week it's not going to be a, uh, a particularly warm week. We seem to be having, I mean, I suppose no. that's, that's typical for a, uh, a Melbourne spring, isn't it? It's a top of 17 with a shower or two today, 16, shower or two for Thursday, and uh, Friday, shower or two clearing and 16. So, you know, yeah. umbrella week, I guess. Yeah, yeah, things to look forward to. And, and look, you haven't mentioned it was Halloween last night. Or is, that, <laughs> is that a kind of cultural imperialism from North America? Well, the thing that gets me, like, I know people complain about, um, you know, the North American part, the, the, the candy part and all that, and I, I get that, but really this is, this is a holiday that goes far much further back Absolutely. than candy. Absolutely. And, but, uh, and then the North America too. Yeah, but there is, a, there is a problem with it because if you go far back enough with it, and it's the same with Easter. It's the same with Christmas. It's the same with um, the, these sorts of holidays that are rooted in celebrations of the earth and the cycles of and the earth. Pagan, in the pagan tradition. But we've got them all back to front on this hemisphere, don't we? <laughs> so Halloween should be celebrated in what? May? April? Or something that's because sure. it's, yeah, it's we're a trying to no, no, no. work this out last e- night. Equinox. And I, yeah. How did you go working it out? Oh, uh, I, I was. <laughs> I didn't work it out, so no, I'm okay. glad we can work it out here. But it does sound like it is a bit of a flip. 
We've been yes. doing it in yeah. different cycle, a bit like how toilets flush the other way around in the southern hemisphere. Oh, you get everything. So really, we should be finding things that celebrate the Earth from the perspective yeah. of this side of the Earth. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yes, yeah. indeed. Because I mean, we certainly yeah. aren't getting close to the, the the you know the opening of the veil, the All Hallows Eve, the Samain, you know, yes. this sort of thing. That's yeah. but I do that. I do like the Day of the Dead though, and that's kind mm. of middle hemisphere at least. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that uh, that celebrates souls coming back. Yeah, that's mm. around this time of year. I and think. it all, yeah, a lot of it seems to be linked to um, the 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 you know the cycle of uh, Southern Earth at that time and and how yeah. how much light we're getting and what the sort of harvest periods were like and all that. If you think back to when we were in, mm. you know, really connected to that, which maybe a little bit less so, or maybe we've just forgotten about it a little bit, yeah. a little bit more. Fun, so. fun to explore that one. It is. Mm. Yeah. What have up, we got? Up next, we've got Heather Keith talking with Vivian Langford, um, who's an ecologist, all about the dollar value of forests. Heather Keith is a scientist, she's an ecologist, and she's specialising at the moment in finding out the dollar value of forests, as we depend on them to draw down carbon dioxide. She's at the Fenner School of Environment and Society at ANU, and I'm going to ask her how much our forests are worth in dollars. So welcome, Heather. Uh, hello, Vivian. I'm glad you could talk to us because this is going to be contrasting with the campaigners who want to talk about all the other benefits of forests, but you're going to tell us the actual carbon value. So your research uses environmental accounting, which is apparently internationally recognised. So how do you put a price on a tree? Well, you can put a price on, on the forest, on trees in the forest, and that's what we have done. But it is important to recognise that it's not the complete price. So we quantify a forest in physical terms and how these change over time. So things like the, the amount of carbon stored, the water yield, the timber production, diversity of species. So when we're assigning a monetary value or a price on the ecosystem services like carbon and water, where we can put a price on them, that these are goods and services that are being used within the economy currently, and so we can value them. But there are all these other values that are also important. You studied the tall, wet forests of central Victoria and produced a graph. I thought that was the best bit, showing in, uh, contributions to GDP that water was worth, for example, 310 million, agriculture 312 million, tourism 260 million, and carbon storage at the moment is worth $49 million per year. And this contrasts with the products of forest logging, which are mostly used for paper production at the moment. That was only $12 million. Has this graph been a clincher when you talk to government people? Well, we're hoping so. I mean, we, we have started talking to people in government departments, and I think it's, it has been very instructive for them to realise just these relative values and how much higher the water, the carbon, the tourism is compared with the small production from the native forest timber industry. The numbers and the graph that we've produced, they're all consistent. It's, it's comparing like with like for each industry. But there are people who uh, consider that it's not including the whole industry, and so they're disputing our numbers. Mm. Well, I believe the carbon storage in that particular forest is, is fabulous. 
Could you just tell me why or how you measure the carbon that you could say is in those tall forests of Victoria? Oh, well, it starts off going into the forest and to quite a, a large number of sites. We, we actually had 54 sites that we measured in different forest areas across the Central Highlands and specifically identifying sites that were different ages in different parts of the landscape uh, and measured all the trees, measured their diameters, their heights, uh, the different species, the different layers, so not just the eucalypts but the mid-storey and understory trees and shrubs, the coarse woody debris or logs on the ground and, and the understory and litter. So a lot of different components to calculate the biomass stocks in these forests. And then we scaled that up across the landscape uh, according to the forest type and environmental conditions at our individual site. We also used hundreds of inventory plots that had been established and the data collected by Victorian state forests over many years. And this is inventory data that they use for calculating wood yields. And so this gave us sites over a much greater range of environmental conditions as well as our very specifically measured sites. Mm. Well, from a climate change perspective, we want to know the capacity of a forest, you know, how much we're thinking of it in carbon storage. It sounds very crass to call a place a carbon sink, but at the moment that's what we urgently need. And I've read David Lindenmeyer's work and he says this ecosystem is close to collapse. It's a lot of the old wood, the old growth is now I think about only one percent of what used to be there is remaining so there's an urgency on that level on the ecosystem level but on the climate level we need to maximize the carbon store where we've got it so how would you think would be the best way to manage it I know the emissions reduction fund doesn't pay anyone to manage native forests yet but eventually they may and when they do what would be the best way to manage this forest so that it doesn't collapse well Protecting the forest and allowing the trees to grow and not harvest them is the first most important aspect of managing this forest. That would not only improve the, the habitat for the many species there, but from our climate change mitigation point of view, it would allow the carbon stocks to continually increase and accumulate over time. And so we would then return the carbon stocks of this region to what they are in the old growth forest over many decades and, and centuries. And I think this would mean jobs, wouldn't it? Would there, what sort of work would that involve? Well, any landscape needs to be managed, um, just like national parks are managed now. So it would be the same type of people and jobs that are required. So maintaining roads and, and fire trails, controlling feral animals and weeds, man maintaining firefighting capacity. It would be if it was a national park and open to the public, which would be really, really good, just maintaining um, the area and, and the, the people using, the visitors using that mm. national park. You know, just, I imagine you um, will have seen a lyrebird somewhere in your travels through the forest. Would you like to tell me about that? Because I've called this program in the land of the lyrebird. Did you ever see a lyrebird? Uh, yes, I have seen a lyrebird in the forest and... They're, I mean, they're absolutely magnificent. You hear them first because you hear a, range, a great range of bird songs and, and start by thinking, 
oh, could there be that many different <laughs> species of bird all in this one small area? And then you realise it's all coming from the one bird. A very clever mimic. Yeah. I've put a, a YouTube attached to the podcast so listeners can see that someone's captured the bird in full flight imitating kookaburras and going well I just thought it was so so much fun and so precious and when you think of this I'm just keen about the carbon but really these birds are our allies and the leadbeater possum all these ones that need they absolutely need that old forest and they need everything to stay intact and how beautiful and wonderful it would be to make it possible for more tourists to just go there and just enjoy it because I think that's, I've never seen a live bird they seem to be very shy and dash away but well, they are shy and um, you need to know sort of the places where they're likely to be, particularly in moist gullies. They're also really important for maintaining the ecosystem. So you see in the forest floor, you see their scratchings in the litter, so they're looking for grubs to eat. But the way they turn over the litter and mix it up with the soil is really important for decomposition. So all these different species have their own role in maintaining the processes of the ecosystem. Yeah, um, just to finish, uh, Heather, there's a conference coming up in November at Bonn, the uh, um, next, next climate conference, and I know in the land sector discussions they're going to be talking about the accounting rules. Do you think, what do you think will be the best change in rules to allow more carbon sequestration in forests? Recognising the value of primary forests is really critical and that the carbon stored in these forests is what we would call a high quality in that it's a high density of stock, a high number of tonnes of carbon per hectare, but it's also resilient in that natural ecosystems are resilient to disturbance. So there may be a wildfire or windstorms, but these forests are able to self-regenerate and maintain their carbon stocks over very long times. And this is very different to plantations where they're single species and even aged, do not have as high carbon stocks and are far more vulnerable to loss by disturbance. How do you protect against fire? The, the gaps that have been created in the forests in the Central Highlands or in any other region because of clear felling or, or any form of logging and then younger stands of trees, a major way that the, then the edge of the old growth forest dries out and it lets the wind in. So it's a major source of um, why fires, once they're ignited and spreading, will be more severe even into the old growth forest. We are using services, goods and services from the environment that haven't been included in any way in our current national accounts or business models and that we need to be accounting for them in order to recognise their value and that if we degrade or lose these ecosystem services then this is a great cost not only to our economic activity but general human well-being and this is one of the great advantages of the system of environmental economic accounting that we can try and bring the environment into our everyday decision-making about how we use natural resources. Thank you very much. So that was Heather Keith, Dr Heather Keith. She's an ecologist um, at the Fenner School of Environment and Society at ANU. Thank you very much, Heather.
push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal. You have to try very hard not to have fun on a push bike. Yarrabug. They show about bikes. Get on your bike. Riding them. Sit on the seat. Fixing them. Push your feet on the pedal. Loving them. And ride all around. Mondays. 10 a.m. to 10.30 here on 3CR. Put your feet on the pedals and ride it all around, ride it all around. And today here we are on 3CR and we have Dr. Catherine Cook, who is a physician at the Royal Children's Hospital of Melbourne and a chair of Hush Foundation, which is holding, holding the Gathering of Kindness Festival at the moment. Welcome, Catherine. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for joining us here on 3CR. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about what the Hush Foundation is for listeners who don't... don't. The, the Hush Foundation started nearly 20 years ago out of my work at the Royal Children's Hospital where families talked about how difficult it is when you come into hospital and you've got a sick family member, you're feeling really stressed and upset and... They actually asked if they could have some music that might help to calm everyone down. So the Hush Foundation started bringing musicians and composers into hospitals so that we could improve that environment and give people a sense of optimism and calm when they came in. We've now expanded into uh, a children's book. We've done a series of plays that we put on in hospitals that really highlights some of the issues about communication and safety for patients. Mm. And our latest endeavour is this gathering of kindness. Beautiful. Could you tell us a little bit about the play that happened in 2011 um, by Alan Hopgood called Hear Me? I heard that that informed a lot of the work that has come out of the Hush Foundation and also the gathering of kindness. Yes. Look, that play has been really um, quite amazing. So I gave Alan Hopgood a whole lot of real stories from patients and families and from staff who work in healthcare. And he came up with this play that takes you through a devastating medication error that happens because staff are not treating each other with respect and communicating well. Nobody's listening to the family when they know that there's something wrong. And it takes you on this emotional journey that really reconnects people who are watching it and it makes them think about their own behaviour and their part in keeping everybody safe. And we've now taken that play on tour. We've done 140 performances in hospitals all around the country. And I think it's from the feedback that we've got as we do the play and we do it like a debrief discussion afterwards. We've heard a lot about bullying and poor behaviour in healthcare make staff burn out and um, get mental health issues and also then not treat the patients and families the best possible way. And out of that has grown the idea, let's talk about kindness. Let's not talk about bullying and bad behaviour, but what is a kind health system and how can we work together towards that better system? Mm. And that seems Does very, that make sense? It makes a lot of sense and it seems from... Um, looking on your website and looking into gathering of kindness, that's what it's really trying to do is shift the conversation in its focus rather than 
just acknowledging the fact that there is a need for kindness to exist within that system, but it's just saying how do we do that and it's being an inclusive way. It's not just people sitting in a board meeting saying this is how kindness should be instilled within a culture. It's saying how do you think it should happen? And so how does a festival like that, how is it playing out through, this is its second time round, how's the festival playing out so far? Well, it's a very organic thing and we're just being inclusive of everybody who would like to come and have their say about how they think it could be better. And I think this collaborative approach is a little bit different and is really good and exciting. So everybody feels their voice is going to be heard. And, of course, there's going to be lots of different ways we can do this. There's quite a bit of work being done in healthcare at the leadership level, so compassionate leadership um, courses and things, which tie in really beautifully with our grassroots attempt to get every single individual who is touched by healthcare to think about what's the kindest option in this interaction I'm having with someone. I think How can I be sorry. the best person I can be in this conversation? I think it's interesting that it started off, I think, from what you're saying, as an idea to make things better for the patients or for the people coming into the hospital, and it ended up being something that benefits the whole, all the people there. But it, it ends up being a whole system in a way that you're that you're trying to educate or you are educating. Yes, look, you're right. I have found over the years that it's sad when health professionals are getting burnt out and not actually getting the best out of their work. And what we're bringing back is the joy and meaning. People got into healthcare for a reason, and that is usually that they want to help people and they want to make a difference. And if the system and their colleagues crush that out of them, that's a sad thing. And this gathering is really joyful. Mm. So people are bringing good ideas about how to get that joy and meaning back in your work. And have you found that a lot of the artworks, say um, Alan's play, has allowed people to imagine into their own experiences and then um, open up and there's been space to be able to hear that and then put it down into different ways to change that culture? Yes, I think that's exactly what's happening. And for this gathering of kindness, Alan has written a new play. And this play is called What Matters? And it's really looking at individual acts of kindness that have made a difference or when you can see the kindness has been lacking and things have not gone as well as possible. So there's still time for people to come and see the play this week. Um, we've had the world premiere in Wangaratta on Monday. Then we took it to Monash yesterday. Um, we're going to sail next week. There's lots of stuff happening all around Victoria. And in fact, people are coming to the website and they're taking some of our resources and running their own events wherever they are. So we've got some beautiful little video clips that you could take to just a staff room um, or a staff meeting and use that as a trigger for some conversations. So a video from Elizabeth Broderick talking about are we actually too busy to be kind or is it those really stressful, busy times that we need to focus on kindness between our colleagues so that we can get the best out of the team? So it sounds like you are focusing on the positive, on kindness, on what can be done, but you're not ignoring the fact that there have been problems. Definitely not. And there are news reports pretty much every day now that there's, you know, discord in the health system 
and something needs to be done. So many people are working on policies and procedures and how we're going to um, look at those bad behaviours. We're bringing in this complementary approach, which is let's all focus on kindness. Let's be positive. Very good. And where can listeners, uh, obviously going to that website and trying to do some of their own things, but if they don't, is are you pretty active on social media as well? Where can we direct some attention and some focus from our wing? Um, have a look at the Hush Foundation website and Facebook and Twitter and also gatheringofkindness.org and that's got social media links all around the place. I'm not an expert, but there are lots of volunteers out there helping us to put the really amazing content up there that people can share. Mm. And how does it, how's the future look for Gathering of Kindness and also the Hush Foundation? What are some other projects that are coming up and creative projects, to be honest? What, what's looking well, like it'll be in the space of the healthcare system? The Hush Foundation's very busy, as well as Gathering of Kindness. We've been working for the last two years on what will be an album and a series of concerts in 2018. And we've put um, 12 composers into children's hospitals around the country doing a composer-in-residence program. And these composers are working with young people with chronic illness and mental health issues, and they're composing music for the Australian Chamber Orchestra. So the music will be ready by December. We'll be doing some concerts and having the album ready about next September. So these projects are big and complicated and there's such goodwill in them. It's just quite amazing. Yeah, that does sound really amazing and getting everyone engaged in in creating music. I can't think of anything better. Well, our other exciting news is we have an ARIA nomination um, for Hush 16. Fantastic. (laughs) So our music is going to the ARIAs in November for the album we did last year with Lior the idea of North and Elena Katz-Chernan. Wow. And for that one, we interviewed a whole lot of children about their thoughts on life, the universe and everything, and um, wrote songs based on that. And it's an extraordinary album. I hope we win an aria. Oh, well, they'll be nominated, <laughs> just to be nominated. Step, I hope exactly. you win too. Yeah. Lovely Thank you, you. Did, but you've been winning in a few corners by the sounds of it. It's good you've got enough steam to keep going and keep going and create the things that you have. Well, I think the creative things really help you to keep energised. I mean, what the arts can bring to something like healthcare is quite amazing. And we're getting calls to go global with the gathering of kindness. So there's obviously a real need for that. It's gotten quite sterile in that space and it needs some different perspectives to come in there and open it up and open up the dialogue in a different way to suppose maybe how it has been tried to be squeezed in there before. Thank you so much, Catherine Crock, for coming in and talking to us about this. Um, It's great to get insight into the work that Hush does and hear a little bit about Gathering of Kindness. I'll be following on your socials. I have a few friends and family who work in the healthcare system, so I'll definitely be bringing that conversation up. (laughs) Oh, look, thank you very much. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you very much. It is 3CR Wednesday breakfast, 1st of November, and 25 minutes uh, to 8 right now. 3CR breakfast would like to say thanks to program sponsor, The New International Bookshop, for the financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. Celebrate International Day of People with Disability at the Victorian Disability Sport and Recreation Festival. 
featuring over 30 exhibitors and three activity zones, come and try different modified sports and watch a disabled water skiing demonstration. This is a free, accessible, family-friendly event. Friday the 1st of December from 10am to 3pm at Crown Riverwalk. For more information, visit dsr.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Come and at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together. Worker stories and union news. Grassroots Voice is broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. But I feel just the same It's not the land I miss here Not the trees that grow and sway It's the memories of laughter And the friends that share this change It could be forever A lifetime spent together There could be forever you and me My memories remain here They're just staying ingrained As people grow and lives change The forest remains the same It's not the land I miss here Not the trees that grow and sway It's the memories of laughter And the friends that share this change Let good be forever A lifetime spent together Let good be forever A lifetime spent together It could be forever you and me. Hey, yeah. I need you, baby. Whoa. Every night, every day. Lord, I need it forever, forever. Hey, yeah. 
And that was the Teskey Brothers Forever You and Me from the 30 Days of Yes, um, a campaign that's running getting and involving musicians to talk about it. The Teskey say Forever You and Me is a love song about community, about committing to a person for your whole life. Members of the LGBTQTI plus community do this all the time. But our country won't formally recognise that. This needs to change now. Please share this track and support it. Yeah, where can we find it? Can you find it online somewhere? Yeah, you can find it online. Like if you go to 30 days of yes, bandcamp.com is a good yep. place to find that and play that all day long if you want. <laughs> and the um, Teskey Brothers, it's a name I uh, keep seeing coming up all over the place. I, I noticed them uh, on the bill for Strawberry Fields Festival coming up. Um, and I, I have noticed that uh, more and more as the... Um, as the girl. <laughs> <laughs> I think I just. I think Nick just got a little bit of dust coming in here. Obviously, dreams yarn and little vacuum and Nick's just hoovering up the dust here in the studio. Live radio, folks. Live radio. How you go? You all right, Nick? That's what happens when you have facial hair. You just sometimes inhale it. Sorry. The as the festival scene seems to uh, be evolving, or as the um, electronic festivals are evolving, they're they're, they're sort of um, turning into this hybrid uh, thing. Well, some of them are. Some of them are staying full electronic, but uh, uh, a lot of them are turning into a hybrid of uh, all sorts of things. Where you'll have everything from you know the the, the, the pounding bass of of Psytrance and other ridiculous dubstep and all these um mm. these kind of ones, and then the Teskey Brothers. <laughs> you know, yeah, some blues in your afternoon. Bluesy. Yeah, I thought it was great. I think you haven't needed a few tunes like that, especially if you've danced the night away. To yes, yes. <laughs> it's a it's a good way to balance things out. I think uh, twenty twenty two eight uh, and heading for a top of sixteen degrees. Oh, sorry, seventeen. I think it was and, oh, that's and a bit of rain. Yeah, I'm glad for that extra one degree. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, right now, uh, Jake Redman. Uh, yeah, Patty. Jake Redman is the social worker out at the Purple House in. Alice Springs, and he starts out the conversation talking what the Purple House is and how it's come to be, and we run in and we start talking about a fundraising event that's happening this week or next week, just pre-Cup Eve. So the Purple House offers dialysis. The main thing we do is dialysis out in community. So, um, yeah, so I'll give you a bit of a background story on how we kind of started. So in a community called Kintor, which is just on the um, Northern Territory WA border, uh, remote community about 550 kilometres from Alice Springs, population of 350. Uh, they, wanted, they wanted to keep their old people on country. They wanted to have dialysis there because all their old people were having to go to the town or to cities and finish their lives. In, in the cities or in the towns. Um, and the only things that was keeping them from their country was access to dialysis. So they wanted to have dialysis machines out there in Kintor. And the government said, no, nah, that's not safe. We can't do that. Um, so they kind of took it into their own hands. And it was um, in 2000, they um, did these amazing collaborative artworks and... Um, had an auction in Sydney and raised over a million dollars. And um, they said, we want dialysis in Kintor. Um, and so, yeah, that was in 2000. Um, and then it wasn't until 2004 that we uh, did our first dialysis treatment. 
the first was in Alice Springs and then it was in Kintore. Amazing. It's a really good story of community getting together and doing something about an issue and directly relates them and empowers them. Absolutely. Uh, it's strong and since yeah. then um, the Purple House has grown into quite an organisation but I was hoping I'm not all over the top of what Dialysis actually does. What? Yeah, sure. Um, so Dialysis um, does the job of your kidney. So kidney failure, um, your kidneys have completely shut down and um, a dialysis machine uh, takes off fluid and clears toxins out of your body. So instead of our kidneys are working 24 hours a day around the clock, um, these dialysis machines go for about, about five hours every, well, three times a week. So these people need to sit on these big machines in this chair and um, this machine does the job of the kidneys. Um, so, it, yeah, it takes up a lot of, a lot of your time. Uh, the day before you have dialysis, you're feeling really exhausted because you've got a build-up of toxins and fluid in your body. And then, and then after your dialysis, you're exhausted because you've had this really um, extreme um, procedure treatment. Yeah, so it takes a big, takes a big work mm. out on the body. And, like, kidney failures from diet, isn't it, and a lot of... So yeah, so there is a huge, the, the, the dialysis unit around the corner is the biggest dialysis unit in the southern hemisphere. So it is a big, a big thing out here in the desert. Um, my understanding of it is, yeah, the, the contrast of, of diet um, and um, to what people were eating a few generations ago. Um, so say three or four generations prior people were eating off the land pretty yeah lean meats and and bush foods um also being the desert food wasn't you know it wasn't heaps of food so less less food and then now people are eating the food on communities is um pretty pretty uh pretty rubbish really it's um yeah chips saturated fats um a lot of soft drinks and stuff like that so there's refined foods um, and high salt and stuff like that. So it's just overloading the kidneys, I think. And um, yeah, in the two and a half years I've been out here, I've seen an increase in people needing dialysis. So it seems like it's going to get worse before it gets better. But globally, there is a there's a kidney failure. It's happening around the globe. It's I think the, <laughs> the mainstream Western diet's pretty rubbish, really. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And when I was chatting to you the other day, Jake, you were telling me you'd just come off a day and uh, you'd spent a large majority of it at a hospital. You got along with one of the people there yeah. um, and they didn't really want to go into the hospital, not a big fan of the clinical environment. Yet have a connection with you and you yeah. sort of, how did you get, you somehow managed to convince them it was a good idea to go into the hospital. They had heart problems. Sure. Um, yeah, sure. So yeah, so that's a yeah. So I play a bit of a bridge role as well. Um, so through through spending time building rapport, um, yeah, being out to communities and stuff like that, I've built trust with a lot of a lot of the clients, um, and and I understand the medical side a little bit as well. So kind of helping helping yeah play that putty filler or the bridge kind mm -hmm. of role. Um, so, yeah, so this fella, he, he'd missed a dialysis. He, um, he had a lot of fluid, a lot of fluid on him 
and his heart was doing these these um, kind of scary things, um, irregular patterns. Um, but he, yeah, he doesn't like the hospital, and uh, and yeah, so but he trusts me, and so we went in together. But um, yeah, the hospital can be a really scary place for a lot of people, and it can be associated with negative things. I suppose we view going to the hospital as healing, but uh, this is a place of not being heard, not being understood, having to get needles jabbed in your arm and just told to listen. And um, yeah, a lot of these are incredible old people with a lot of wisdom and um, often get treated like <laughs> like mm. children. So, um, so I understand why he didn't want to go in there, but he really did need to have dialysis and he could only get it in the hospital. So... Um, yeah, so we went in and we just spent the day there and, um, I was, yeah, rubbed some cream on his back and helped him get his lunch and, uh, we were all right in the end and, um, it was actually, it was nice for me to be able to support that fella and, yeah, he's doing a lot better. He's just got out of hospital today and he was all smiles and thumbs up and he was looking really good. So it was, yeah. um. It was good that he got to spend the, had to no he did spent those days in hospital and got that extra dialysis mm. and and that's what struck me um, when you told me that story part of it yesterday was how the purple house even because you hold quite a pivotal role in organising when you're at the purple house in Alice Springs but yet you still had time to or was allowed time to hang out and work through on a one on one in the hospital and make this person feel safe comfortable absolutely and run through which is quite yeah. a rare thing i'd imagine for an organization to allow allow that to happen yeah that's true that's one of the beautiful things about the purple house is um yeah we can we don't have those pressures of yeah mm. of i don't know a lot of government organizations and we can prioritize and and make time to yeah spend time with people when I suppose a social worker at the hospital might not be able to spend a whole day with someone, um, but we can kind of see the importance of, mm. of needing to get for him to do that um, and be feel safe in hospital and knowing that if I wasn't sitting there with him, he probably wouldn't be there. Um, and so we've got a lot of freedom in how we can uh, deliver our service. Yeah, which is great. It seems like it's a beautiful house, thing. Yeah, yeah. The Purple House has embedded that in its culture from the start, which is a strong That's thing it, yeah. to lead. And the Purple House is quite. It stands on its own legs from the beginning of raising that money over a million dollars from its painting revenue, and it's continued That's on it. with those revenue raising campaigns in quite an inclusive and imaginative way. Which leads us into what's happening here in Melbourne. There's two events coming up. Um, That's one it. Is yeah. Is the dingo which is a bit of a band and a bit of an awareness about what's happening at purple house and all proceeds go to the purple house and i believe that this That's is going to yeah. be directed out toward one particular community yeah docker river which is um 670 odd kilometers out of alice springs beautiful community i've been out there and um the old people are desperately um waiting to go home um there's some some big strong elders who have been stuck in town for a very long time who are finally can see that they'll be able to go home. Um, mm. But yeah, we need to raise the money for, for the nurses to, to help operate those dialysis units. So yeah, super important, super important project. And yeah, that money is going to a really great cause. 
Also, just a plug, if you do want to donate any money to the Purple House, um, the website westerndesertdialysis.com. Um, get on there and see what we're all about. The land was fire It didn't need a hand When my grandfather He came to this land And this old fella He really liked what he the land was harmonious and sound. He grabbed his big shovel and he started to rain. Caretakers of the
And you are listening to Jake Redmond there from the Purple House. He'll be heading down this way on Monday to perform a gig that's opening up at the Grace Darling at 3.30pm and Jake Redmond will be opening the act and it's the dingo if you need to find it and the dingo refers to a legendary carne that enjoys hanging out with a large group of friends. Um, he'll be joined by Harmony Byrne, Woy, Brooke Powers and many others on the ticket there. And it's about three minutes away from 8 o'clock on this 1st of November, um, which if you haven't realised, this year is going by quick, isn't it? Uh, and we're heading for a top of 17 degrees with some showers today. Um, we've got a few events and announcements uh, coming up over the next week or two. Judith, would you like to start us off? Sure. And this sounds, I think, just really interesting. Northern Syria's Feminist Revolution. And it's a seminar on Saturday, November 4th, so yeah, a few days' time, at Victoria University City Campus. And they're going to be looking at, um, you know, I mean, it's interesting because Syria is um, a country that has both Shia Islam, oh, sorry, not Syria, uh, Syria, yes, but uh, the Kurds, uh, the Kurdish people in northern Syria. Um, have a, there, there are Shia people, Sunni people, and also Christians. So there's quite a, a mix of groups there in that area. And uh, women are, are, have been very involved in the military struggle there. And you may have seen some, um, uh, some of the newspaper and uh, video, you know, me, uh, TV coverage of it. Anyway, three amazing speakers, international speakers. Frederica Gerdink, she's a Dutch journalist and based in Turkey from 2006. And you may well know from um, some of the reports on Turkey that journalists have been, particularly foreign journalists, have been having a very bad time there. So be, and she's been expelled from Turkey. Uh, Hashin Aziz, who came to Australia as a Turkish refugee, and Heaven Gunnisar, who is an engineer, journalist, and women's rights activist. So some really important, I mean, some really uh, insightful speakers, I think. And if you've ever wondered and wanted to learn more about the Kurdish people and particularly the women's struggles, it goes till 6.30 on this Saturday, so 10 o'clock in the morning till 6.30, I think, get along there. Victoria University City Campus, 300 Flinders Street, Melbourne. Uh, we have a protest tomorrow that you can uh, join, uh, especially if you're interested in anything to do with the universities, with unions, um, uh, or with ter- tertiary education and the sort of things that are going on. Stop VU Union Busting uh, is the name of the protests, and uh, there are a number of positions that have been made uh, redundant of the uh, uh, NTEU VU branch, uh, and it seemed to happen around the same time as a new enterprise agreement was being bargained. So there's a little bit of suspicion about why exactly that's happened. Uh, it's happening 12 noon tomorrow at uh, the VU Council meeting at CBD Campus, 300 Flinders Street. Uh, and there's a hashtag as well, hashtag shame VU shame. There's a couple of protests happening today. If you want to get down to the convention uh the Stopadani International Mining Conference. That's happening today at 1.30 and running till 3. And join up there at the Exhibition Centre. I'm pretty sure there's some corporates meeting up to talk about the proposed mine. Um, people are there to show support against it. Um, so, so important, that one. And so many people are now coming out against it. It's just, I can't believe the government's persisting with it. I know, it's really showing a few things that are going behind closed doors. So please, if you can, understand that people have to make a crust here and there. But if you can get down, please do. 
Uh, there's also something else happening today for that uh, climate change leadership that's happening today at 10, 12 um, p.m. Uh, a.m. and running till 11, 10 at Parliament of Victoria, Spring Street. So if you really want an activist field day, it is there for you here on your Wednesday breakfast. <laughs> and uh, tomorrow, uh, the launch of... Um the Beyond the Bars 2017 CD uh, that's from 3CR and it's highlighting this year's NAIDOC Week uh, prison broadcasts. Uh, the launch will feature live music, uh, oh, sorry, a live panel discussion uh, on in- Aboriginal incarceration, Q&A and some deadly music as well, free CDs, snacks and drinks will be available, all happening from 6 o'clock at MESA, the Melbourne Aboriginal Youth Sport and Recreational Cooperative at 1... Uh, one Oh, just checking if that's a nine or a eight. <laughs> One eighty-four Gertrude Street uh, in Fitzroy, so just, just up the road. The corner, yeah. Just, yeah, I would really like to get down to that and have a look. What's happening there? They've been doing yeah. a lot of great work behind the bars. Great. Uh, and a couple of other things coming up this weekend, uh, the Thrive Symposium, which is looking to connect, communicate and co-create. You can find them on Facebook to read a little bit more about it. But a uh, number of speakers over the Saturday and Sunday from 9.30am until 6pm, including 3CR's very own Sally Goldner from uh, Out of the Pan uh, on Sundays at uh, 12 uh, one o'clock, I, I believe, uh, Sally's on, but also a number of other people, including uh, Nevena from High Alert, who's also running in the uh, Northcote by-election. Uh, they're doing a High Alert networking session and um, many, many more. Um, it's, a, it's a huge program uh, and that's happening across the weekend, uh, this weekend. Um, also, uh, for, on the Northcote by-election, of course, it's going to be a close race between the uh, Greens candidate, Lydia Thorpe, and the Labor candidate, Claire Burns. Uh, both of them will be attending a Meet the ca- uh, Candidates and Ask Questions uh, evening, which is being put on by uh, a number of groups. Alliance for Gambling Reform, Belfast Coastal Reserve Action Group, Darabin Climate Action Now, Darabin Community Network, Darabin Neighbourhood Houses Network, Darabin Hashtag Stop Adani, Friends of the Earth, Friends of Mary Creek, Hands Off Public Housing, Transition Darabin, uh, Victorian National Parks Association and Vote Climate. All of those groups have been... Uh, That's uh, a pretty impressive list. Very, so amazing. I suspect though the candidates yeah. are going to get quite the grilling at, uh, at yeah. this event, which is no, it's important. No, I just want to add that there's a reason party candidate as well in that election. Uh, there is, but I don't know if she's going to be along at that. There's actually okay. about 10 candidates um, uh, contesting that, but it looks like it's just the Labor and the Greens candidate okay. who will be yep. at this event on 9th of November uh, at 7pm at Northcote Town Hall. Uh, so if you're interested in hearing uh, those two, I suspect the other candidates might go along or they might hold their own uh, competitive events. They but... might indeed, <laughs> yes. And um, also uh, the Peel Street, uh, there's a Peel Street, inaugural Peel Street Festival coming up on the 11th of November uh, from midday and include it's free it's a it's a all all ages event family event uh, happening from noon until 8 p.m. Uh, after 8 p.m. it is 18 only uh, event but including uh, Archie Roach who we heard before Cash Savage and the last drinks uh, Archer magazine oh, heaps there is on, on that one they really pulled yes. something together there mm. so get down so support for that yeah, and that's uh, that's the last of the events that I have this morning. <laughs> uh, it is 3CR uh, breakfast about uh, um, ooh, five minutes past eight. Get a healthy dose of anti-nuclear... 
peace and sustainability issues on the Radioactive Show. 10am Saturdays on 3CR Community Radio, 855 on your AM dial. And also podcast and web streamed on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. The Radioactive Show, where every bit of exposure makes you stronger. Hello, here we are at 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Just would like to let you know our next guest does a lot of body work um, and if and talking a little bit about sexuality and sex. So if you'd like to tune out the next five minutes, ten minutes, please do if this would be any triggers for you. But without any further ado, I'd like to welcome Euphemia Russell, who is a sexuality and a pleasure educator who is about to host an event um, that explores the orifice of the butts and using butt plug dance party, I understand. I am. I am. Thanks for having me. It's really exciting to be here and to be talking about this. So Beautiful. Um, I'd just like to get a little sense of what your work is about. I've seen a little bit of your posts and different things that you get up to, but just for the listeners to get a sense of who you are and where you're coming from to hold a space like this. Totally. Yeah, so I started I Wish You Knew uh, to share practical information about sexuality and pleasure because there's not much scientific-based practical information that's available for adults. So I actually went and trained in California, so I'm a a trained and endorsed sexuality educator and came back and started this project. And all the events that I do were focused on curious millennials because a lot of people are wanting to know more but don't necessarily know where to find it. So accessibility is a huge part of it um, for me and their push for it. And then in terms of the events that I do, I try to make it so that it's a little bit um, out of the norm around sexuality and the sort of content that people find, but held in a really safe space. So we're trauma-informed and we're very aware of the the science, but also um, the potential uh, delicateness of it for everyone because we all carry a lot of shame and uh, guilt around it. Um, But it's at the... At the crux of it, it's supposed to just be fun and exploring. So the Butt Plug Dance Party was a way to, for people to come and be in a non-sexualized space so there's no hooking up and there's no nudity um, and there's an access to a video series so they can feel really comfortable and informed before they arrive. Um, and then when they arrive, they'll be with their butt plugs in um, and they'll come and the first hour will be a workshop. So it will be the sort of extra information beyond that video series so they can really learn about anal safety and pleasure because a lot of people have really awful experiences with that because we don't get taught how to approach it Um, and the sphincters there's two sets of sphincters and they they take a little bit of coaxing and knowledge of how to engage with them um, and then, so I'm just going yeah, to. I mean, please. when you say butt plug, uh-huh. and they'll have their butt plugs in. Yep. Um, for people who might not know, mm-hmm. what, does what is that, a butt plug? What's that mean? Yes. Oh my goodness! If it wasn't radio, I would totally have brought a few um, different <laughs> butt plugs so that people could see the different shapes and sizes. But basically, the idea is that a butt plug um, sits uh, outside, so there's a flared base, and it has to be three inches so that it's safe. Um, and it sits outside between the cheeks. Three, sorry, three inches. Three in- inches long. Right. Um, so that it's actually like a hook so it doesn't disappear up your bum because okay. yep. your, your anal cavity is So endless. that's on the outside, the exactly. three inches. Yep. So um, as I say, f- without a flared base, without a trace. So mm-hmm. 
because your anal cavity is endless, mm. um, if you try and put things up there that don't have a flared base, they will literally disappear into your mm -hmm. intestines. And so why the emphasis? So hello, ER. Yeah, so, <laughs> so why the emphasis on, I mean, you're talking about pleasure. Uh -huh. Obviously, that's part of pleasure. Absolutely. But, but why the emphasis there in your party? Because, uh, I mean, this is the first one we're running, um, but because so many people have bad experiences with okay. anal uh, yeah. pleasure um, and they don't, a lot of people don't know how to approach their bums safely. And people don't necessarily know that there's a lot of nerve endings around the entrance to the anus mm -hmm. and even externally. So a butt plug actually just pushes against those external nerves. And so um, a lot of people have nerve endings there. And we all have slightly different nerve ending mapping or different mm -hmm. clusters of nerve endings. Uh, yeah. But most people, um, if they don't have any scarring or uh, physical trauma there, will be able to experience some kind of... Um, some kind of pleasure from using a butt plug. And uh, there's different shapes and sizes. Which is probably quite important. Absolutely. And that's <laughs> yes. all in the video series before I share, so people yes. can feel really No, No, I, I just want to... Often we associate uh, anal sex with, with the gay community, and gay absolutely. men in particular. Yep. But I know it's much more, more broad spread than that. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's absurd to associate a body part with a whole identity yeah indeed, um, indeed. it's bizarre but it's it's a real thing and it's something that we yeah. all have to potentially unlearn and then relearn mm -hmm. um and so i think that inevitably there's stigma around the the butt because it's supposedly dirty and it's unknown um and when we're stressed our sphincters literally close up um so for a lot of people, it can feel uncomfortable or very confronting because it's such a vulnerable part of the body. Mm -hmm. um, but with that vulnerability can come a huge amount of pleasure if you're feeling really relaxed. Yes, and um, it's an erogenous zone, exactly. isn't it? Exactly, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So how's that going to be playing out? How's the event going to be playing out? You have to obviously, a lot of people feel quite vulnerable in that space. How are you mm -hmm. going to make everyone feel quite safe in that area and... I uh, understand that there'll be a few different dance moves that will play out to make people <laughs> yep. maybe um, test out the pleasure space and the butt plug. Totally. Yeah, so as I said, um, I'm a trauma-informed facilitator. Um, so in the space, we always create ground rules uh, for people in terms of what they need to feel supported in their own experience and then how they can be really consensual in their interactions with other people. Um, and we're going to have uh, various people there who can be support to the people in the room. Um, and the first hour will be literally just listening and learning so that people can kind of take some time to settle into the space. Um, and then the two-hour dance party afterwards will be in a contained room. Um, and we've made sure that there's a bathroom and a kitchen right there that's all contained so that people can feel really comfortable. And it took us actually a really long time to find a venue that we're happy with so that people could feel relaxed and feel uh, that they weren't kind of uh, in a nightclub and worrying about other people, but could just focus on their own butts and having fun. Mm. And you say you can leave the party with your butt plug in or out, depending on how yeah. comfortable you are with it up there. Um, it sounds like a really cool concept, and you obviously got um, a good introduction there with a little bit of dancing and a good space for people to explore different areas either with friends or by themselves um, it sounds like you've got a good background to know how to create and facilitate a space like that how does the ticketing system work for people if they're interested in getting involved in this event yeah awesome so uh, you can find I wish you knew on Facebook 
um, or on Instagram at sex.iwishyouknew. And there's links on both of them to the, to the event. Um, for people who might not be in Melbourne or who, or who may feel a little too confronted to come to the actual event, um, I've done it so there's a $15 ticket to just access the video series. So people can uh, learn that information and incorporate it in their own time and space. Otherwise, there's um, a ticket for the, the whole event. And then with all of our events, we actually do a, um, what we call a um, plus one for a keen stranger. So if there's someone who uh, buys that ticket, then we actually have a community list for people who might not be able to access it financially, but would love to come. So we always have a couple of spare tickets every event for that as well. Beautiful. It sounds like a lot of thought and curation has gone into that event. Um, it's coming up on the 20... 25th. 5th. So yeah. Saturday the 25th of November in at Second Story in Collingwood. That's right. Uh, which is just on the corner of Hoddle Street and... Um, uh, Johnson Street. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us, Euphemia. It's yeah, been it's been a um, an eye opener. Appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wanted to come and just do five minutes of puns, but I thought that was probably <laughs> slightly inappropriate. <laughs> yes, and we we resisted the impulse. <laughs> I can't yes, help I it. It's, yeah, I'm sorry, but um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It is three CR breakfast. Uh, about quarter past eight. Uh, and we're speaking with Colleen Hartland next about the announcement of the Medically Supervised Injecting Centre getting the green light. City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City limits. Words out. Freedom of species has hit the airwaves. Tune in for debates and updates on both local and international animal protection news and events and learn about how you can live a cruelty-free, sustainable lifestyle. News, views and non-leather shoes. That's Freedom of Species, 1pm Sundays on 3CR. Authorised by the last few remaining kangaroos, Canberra. Okay, well, uh, Colleen Hartland coming up next. She's been the Greens MP for the Western Metropolitan Region since 2006, so 10 years or more. Ten years, yeah, just well, getting over 10 years. I mean, she's been in and around the game. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, 10 years' experience in the Upper House in Victoria, and she holds a number of portfolios for the Greens, So, and that includes health, which is, I think, one reason, but perhaps only one reason why she's interested in this issue. We'll find out more but she and the issue being the um, uh, supervised injecting center so we're all very excited about hearing the announcement yesterday that um, the trial of a supervised injecting center in North Richmond is, is uh, going to go ahead so uh, Colleen Hartland's been a long-time advocate and she's on the line now to to tell us why 
Good morning. Good morning, Colleen. Thank you so much for making time because I know Parliament's sitting and you must be very busy at the moment. Yeah, and you you can hear the bells ringing in the background. Oh, okay. Well, we like sound here on radio. No, no, it's just the early morning test. It's all right. Oh, good. Okay. Well, look, you've been a long-time advocate, and I noticed in your media release you're welcoming the government announcement of the trial. Yes. Can you tell us why this is important? I think it's, you know, for two decades we've known that we needed supervised injecting rooms in various parts of Melbourne. I live in Footscray. Right. And I was involved very much at a time when people would buy their drugs at Footscray Station. I lived next door to the station. They would come into my street to inject. And sometimes that was on my front veranda. Now, in those days, I knew nothing about drugs, but I learned pretty quickly. My great fear was to come home and find someone dead on my property. Now, for me, this was about because this was someone's child, it was someone's brother or sister. Or mother. I didn't really care. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I didn't really care what people were doing. I just wanted to make sure that they were safe. Um, and so, you know, I've been down to Richmond several times and met with the residents there. And as bad as it was in Footscray, you cannot believe how bad it is in Richmond. And yes. I think that's because of the physical layout of Richmond as well. It's an older suburb. There's a lot more dark lanes, a lot more dark corners. Um, the chances of someone dying there, as we've seen in the last year, 34 people have died. Yeah, that's, so that's this was terrifying. That's really yeah, sad. Yeah, it's a logical thing. Um, you know, we do have to look at the politics of this. You know, Richmond is helped by a tiny margin by the state government. The Greens were already in there organising and campaigning. So I do think that, you know, part of this is the government has done it because they knew that this would be a massive campaign issue for us. But at the same time, we really welcome the decision that, you know, yes, indeed. on evidence so, is so absolutely tell me, necessary. Yeah, so tell me, Colleen, what will it actually do? Like, what will it achieve? Well, do you feel? no, we don't actually, we haven't actually seen the bill yet. We're I waiting see. to see that. Um, but, but from the research week. you've looked at, I mean, you mentioned that you started looking into it and looked quickly. What what would you hope, even without seeing the bill, what would you hope it would achieve? Well, I would hope that they're modelling it on what Sydney has done. Right. Um, they've been operating for 13 years. They've had a, quite a large number of overdoses, never had a death. Um, and, you know, having gone up to see the Sydney site, the thing that really struck me in speaking to the staff especially was this was a place where people whose lives are quite chaotic, it's the only place that they may go to each day where there's a sense of ordinary. That right. These were people that they could connect to, that they may seek help from, um, because outside those walls, their lives were pretty, you know, difficult. Um, and so the centre gave a real sense, I think, a real sense of hope to people who were using um, heroin or other drugs. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that has to happen in Richmond as well, and also non-judgmental. Yes, you didn't I think go that's there and so get lectured. Yes. You went there, yeah, um, there was no judgment. It was part of your life, it's what you did, and they were there to assist you in whatever way they could, but no lectures, no judgment. So from what you're saying, what, what this has the potential to achieve, the Supervised Injecting Centre, is yes. a, to prevent deaths from overdose? To prevent death is 
yeah. first yeah. and foremost, but also yeah. offer uh, a safe place for people who, whose yeah. lives can be quite difficult, but yeah. also a That's connection right. with health programs and services so they can yeah. get, a, a, you know, at least referred to other assistance that they might yeah. be needing. That's exactly right. And I think it's also, you know, like various people have said, but it's so close to, you know, the school. But listen to what the school's saying. They want it because at the moment people are injecting in the school grounds. They have syringe litter. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't have a supervised injecting room in Footscray, obviously, but in HealthWorks we have everything but. And one of the really big things that that has resolved is that you very rarely see syringe litter in Footscray now. Yes. Um, and it's the thing that worries people a lot. So yeah. I, I just think this is, it's great. And so, also, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who have to be congratulated in this. Yeah, actually, like, that was my next question. You preempted yeah. it. Yes, so, so the, that's here. Re- yeah, the residents, um, you know, especially Judy Ryan, who has led a very strong yes, we're just We're having to cheer in the studio for here for Judy <laughs> yeah. Ryan because yeah. she's been no, yeah, no, amazing. She's been, yeah. she's been brilliant. Um, Greg Denham from the Yarra Drug and Health Forum, <laughs> Fiona clap. Patton for putting up the the bill, you know, the work that the Greens have done over two decades. And also, you've got to remember that our work in this area often got us smashed politically. Yes. Um, that we were criticised, that, you know, got, um, you know, Labor and Liberal ran campaigns against us saying that we just wanted to give children you know, ecstasy in the streets, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've done it, we've continued with this, at, often at great political cost to ourselves, but I think it's because we just kept in there yes. and just kept hammering the issue. And I think that's the case for, for many of the people who've been yes. involved in this campaign. So it's... Oh. Uh, very uh, exciting moment, mm. and uh, yeah. I'm wondering over your years of campaigning, what yep. there have there been some stories you've heard that convinced you that a supervising supervised injecting center was needed? I mean, are there some oh. from talking to your constituents or people on the yep. street, people who are using? Uh, yeah, yep. are there parents. any that stand and parents? Are there any that stand the out? Par- it's the stories from parents about you know if there had been a supervised. Um, injecting centre, their child would still be alive. If that centre operated, there was a chance that, you know, their child would eventually want to um, to stop using. But they're dead. And there's no yes. going back on that. The horror stories of, of um, people dying in... Dying alone in yes. dark, dark, cold, dingy places with no respect their lives um that they're the ones that have really got to me and you know my experience of footscray of seeing people injecting in my street and just knowing that i you know i had to be involved in getting something better and during that time people say oh but you wouldn't want it in your neighborhood and i have to say well if i'm campaigning for it i have to be prepared to have it in my neighborhood 
Now there is um, another side uh, to this. Um, yeah. I, I've heard that uh, w- when the uh, bill gets introduced uh, for the medically yeah. supervised injecting centre, yeah. Labor is also looking to not let go of this law and order thing that they think the whole election is going to be about, and they are yeah. going to crack down uh, the limits uh, or the amounts of uh, drugs, in particular heroin, yeah. but I suspect they're going to do it to a number of other substances as well, yeah. Um, yeah. to make uh, the amounts lower uh, to for people to be sentenced uh, higher. So, and, yeah. and we have a problem in our prisons at the moment. One of that, one of those problems oh, is that crazy. we yeah. do not have needle and syringe programs. Something yeah. that oh. is, uh, you know, it's it's before the uh, medically supervised injecting centre, and yep. it's it's spread all sorts of disease. Do you want to um, comment a little bit about what's going on well, in the totally, in the prisons? We, we totally support a um, needle exchange in prison. It's just beyond stupid. Like it's this whole idea that people aren't going to be getting drugs in prison. So they're sharing needles. So your chance of going into prison with a drug habit but not having hepatitis, but your chance of coming out, you'll still have a drug habit and you'll have hepatitis. It's just stupid. It doesn't make economic sense either. And that's the whole issue too about imprisoning people for drug use. It doesn't make economic sense. It's $140,000 a year to keep someone in prison in a good... You know, in a rehab program that you may actually want to go into, you're looking at twenty or thirty thousand. Just on the economics, it doesn't make sense. Let alone the compassion. Now we've not seen the bill yet. We have heard that you know they're going to try to tweak it around the law and order. That's obviously something we'll be having a good look at because, you know. It, that kind of law and order stuff around drugs just doesn't make sense to well, us. Well, you know, we have heard lots of evidence that the whole war on drugs has been a total <laughs> failure. And, uh, you know, worked. really, the, the word is out, but it takes a long time for governments to act. And also, I think, yeah. to bring the community along, because there's been so yeah. much you know, the way the media treats this issue. And I notice yeah. you say in your press release that this is an important first step. So we've, yes. we've mentioned uh, drugs in prison, but what else would you like to see happening in this oh, area? The whole suite of issues around, um, you know, the way we, we deal with ice and with cannabis. Shouldn't we be actually looking at the Portugal model of the way that they deal with well, drugs? Well, they, they, they decriminalised all drugs, I believe. For in, use yeah. and possession, yeah. Use and possession, yeah. yeah. Thanks, thanks, yeah. Nick. And yeah. So, you know, and I, I know I keep on going on about economics, but it's actually the thing that could turn this around. In California, a number of conservative governors have given up the war on drugs because it just costs too much. Mm. And they've reformed how they, you know, people go into prisons, etc. Um, so it, you have to look at all of these things. You also need to look at why, you know, people, people are going to take drugs. Yes, no, I mean it's no, it, it, it's not let's it's be sensible. Yes, and it's not just the economic issue really, isn't yeah. it? It's the humanistic, it's the social justice yeah. aspect of yeah. it that's yeah. so important. But Colleen, unfortunately, we're almost we're just about out of time. No worries. But I really appreciate you coming on the show this no morning. Worries. Thank you. It's been fantastic okay. to hear from you. No worries. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That's Colleen Hartland, member for uh, Western Melbourne in the Upper House.
uh, in Victorian Parliament talking to us there about the medically supervised injecting centre, which has received its green light. Uh, it is going to be going ahead, but as she said, we don't know the nitty-gritty details yet. Uh, another thing that's also happened today, just just quickly, um, because the, these this is how these things work. It's it's a uh, we've we've I feel like we've got a two step forward and only one step back this time, rather than one step forward and two steps back. But today begins uh, a new uh, a new kind of prohibition in Victoria, a uh, piece of legislation that passed earlier this year. Uh, uh, now bans anything that is considered a psychoactive substance, which is a really broad kind of term. Uh, now, the, the way that they used to schedule drugs was, um, you know, they, they'd try and at least give the illusion that they were checking for the harms and the risk and say, oh, well, that's too harmful. We need to ban that. Now they don't even give a, they don't even care about proving whether or not something is harmful or risky. Uh, I mean, it just demonstrates what this is all about. It's got nothing to do with community health care. It's got nothing to do with making your better off and everything to do with this kind of idea that we need to I, I mean it's a it's politically cheap for and them as well. And it's a total double standard because you know alcohol mm. is very available it's an extremely dangerous drug so which drugs does the government not approve your drugs if you're using something that's illegal. So yeah it's very arbitrary and becoming more so from what you're more, saying. More absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we are out of time this morning on 3CR Wednesday breakfast with Nick uh, uh, Jeez, oh, I nearly say Kate in there. <laughs> say Patty Kate. and Judith. We miss Kate. We miss Kate. <laughs> uh, thank you to all of our guests this morning. Um, we just had Euphemia in. We've had Dr. Catherine Cook, co-founder of Gathering of Kindness. We had Jake Redman on from the Purple House talking about an event coming up, and we had some. And we had Colleen Hartland, which was just fantastic. And we heard some Archie Roach, which I thought was just wonderful. And I have an announcement. Oh, yes. Yep. More community radio listeners than ever. As of July 2017, 5.3 million people. 5.3 million people. You're among them. If you're out there, tune in to community radio each week. Yay, more than ever on record. So that's pretty fabulous. Must be doing something right. We must, yeah. <laughs> Again, it's the 1st of November. Uh, we're heading for a top of 17 degrees and a lot of rain today. Uh, we have uh, city limits on the way shortly, but uh, Stick Together is up next.